You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honored to welcome to our show Rabbi Kerry Alitsky, former director of Big Tent Judaism, vice president of the Wexner Heritage Foundation, pioneer of Jewish 12-step spirituality, and author of over 75 books, as well as hundreds of articles. Rabbi Alitsky, uh, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, so many books. Um, I'd love to be able to cover all of them, but there's certainly uh, in your work an, an, uh, an approach to spirituality. So I think maybe the first question to ask is, what was it that drew you to Jewish spirituality? I guess I'd have to go all the way back to my childhood. Growing up in a small town in Florida, I was, uh, had the pleasure of being on the Mayor's Youth Advisory Council and responsible for the kids' aspect of the first, you'll pardon the anachronism, Walk for Mankind. It was a charity walk sponsored by an organization, a medical relief organization, called Project Concern. And I was walking with the newspaper, the local newspaper editor, and he said to me, so what do you plan on doing for the rest of your life? (laughs) And I said, without any further thought, I want to become a rabbi. Now, I mention that because it had never entered my mind at all before, and I had thought about things as an intellectual pursuit, an educational pursuit, and I probably would not have had the language at the time to describe it, but it was definitely a calling. And so I made a decision at that time. I was able to figure out a way to conclude my high school education and I made my way to Israel to start college. And that's really what began my draw to spirituality. And I would only call in my, to mind one major spiritual experience, which is kind of a milestone on the way. We were with a group of students. We made the decision we would travel to Sinai at the time, which in those years was completely uh, unfettered. It was virginal territory. And we decided we were going to climb Mount Sinai, or what is proposed to be Mount Sinai. Got up early in the morning, we started a trek. We, I was walking with one of the leaders who at that time was probably 30, and I thought he was an old man at the time. <laughs> and as we walked further up the mountain, we slowed and slowed and slowed. So even though we started out at the beginning, we ended up at the back. When we got to very close to the peak of the mountain where all of the other students were way ahead, he paused. I thought he was out of breath. He said to me, you're not ready to finish this climb. Mm. And we walked down the mountain in silence. That was the beginning of my literal road to Jewish spirituality. That's extraordinary. What what needed to happen for you to finish climbing Mount Sinai? That was something I had to figure out on my own. And so I spent a lot of time, especially during that year in Israel, 
exploring lots of different things, lots of di- different religious encounters and the like, came back to the U.S. to finish my college and graduate school, and then went back to Israel again for my first year of rabbinical school, and that was the first time that I deigned to finish the climb. Now, I knew that I certainly wasn't ready. I think that a spiritual journey, I like to say, it's not about getting there, it's the joy in the journey itself. And I think that that's what I had to do, is to understand that it wasn't getting to a certain place, it was really trying to understand the journey and the joy in the journey itself. Did it, dare I say, need a little bit of rabbinic chutzpah, a little bit of cheek, like, I'm, a, I'm training to be a rabbi now. Now I can at least try to climb Mount Sinai physically, if not spiritually? Well, I think that that's always been a metaphor for me, because Mount Sinai, even though it is located, it's really a metaphysical place. It's a, it's a time, it's a marker, much more than it was a real place. But I think that one of the things that's powerful about ritual in general, and Jewish ritual in particular, is we take these abstract ideas, which are very difficult for us as humans to comprehend, and we concretize them. Mm. And so when these rituals don't work anymore, and they're what I like to call broken rituals, then we kind of lay them aside Maybe we'll pick them up again, maybe we won't, but their whole purpose is to try to help us grab on to these big ideas. And so for me, this notion of Mount Sinai, whether the way I learned it in the biblical text or I experienced it on my own, was always for me this concrete metaphor, I know that's somewhat oxymoronic, but a concrete metaphor for me as to my ongoing spiritual journey, which I constantly return to in my head. Even when I go back to Israel, which I'm fortunate to go back regularly, it's always there. It's always present. It's, excuse me, fascinating for me to, to hear you talk about this, this sort of spiritual journey, especially when you're talking about these broken rituals, setting them aside and connecting to larger ideas. So, how how do you define spirituality? Because you're you're talking about spiritual concepts. What is spirituality to you? For me, as a rabbi, as a religious Jew, for me, spirituality is an attempt to reach over the gap that exists between myself, the sacred, the holy, and ultimately the divine. That's what spirituality is to me. And so I use whatever tools are at my disposal in order to reach over that gap and get closer to the divine. It's kind of like, if you will, the Buber experience that he describes as I Thou, Martin Buber, the great Jewish theologian and philosopher of the 20th century. He talked about this intimate relationship with God. That is, it's a model for you to... Um, model a relationship with others as well. But one of the things that was most difficult for him was to try to explain what this relationship was, because if you leave a little bit about, out of yourself, out of that relationship, in order to then describe it, then you don't have a full I-Val experience. And if you have a full I-Val experience, then there's nothing left out of the rational self in order for you to describe it to somebody else. 
And that's the ultimate pursuit. How do you get there? How do you leave that rationality aside in order to get to that place, even though these rational tools help you to get to that place? Or as one of my colleagues likes to say, it's what's really dancing is when you no longer realize you are. Right. So then if spirituality is that that bridging the gap between the self and the divine, and if we are uh, looking through perhaps a, a Buber model of I thou, I mean, Buber wrote I thou, and it's it's interesting, challenging to get through. You've written you know, over 75 books. How do your books help with spirituality? What's your specific approach? What, what's it been in the past? And also, I guess, what's it shifting to? So let, let's start with the, in the past. What, how have your, how do your books help people spiritually? In a sense, the way my books help spirit, people spiritually is that I have been blessed with the tools to access Jewish tradition, which I think is a um, rich treasury of spirituality. The challenge is, is that not everybody has the ability or the tools in order to do so. So what I essentially do is I identify a population, and I identify what um, resources are in this Jewish treasury, and what are the tools that are necessary to bridge the population with this treasury in order to inform, impact their life. So, for example, when I teach text, just basic Torah text, most people say, I, you teach text to learn more about the Torah. I say you teach text in order to learn more about yourself. So that becomes the starting point. When I identified, and it's a longer story, but when I identified the need in 12-step spirituality to be of help with people, I wanted to provide tools that allowed them to synchronize, if you will, the rhythm of their recovery with Jewish spirituality. So instead of inventing a new language, I used both the 12-step language, which was familiar to those in recovery, and married it to Jewish sacred language, if you will. So, for example, just as people in recovery count their time from seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months in sobriety, Mm -hmm. I ask myself, so how do Jews measure time? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the ways we measure time is in relationship to Shabbat. Mm -hmm. And what does the week look like? So my days of affirmation are linked together to help people move forward, recognizing the way Jews also count time. Or another book that I did is called Jewish Spiritual Guidance. And that was, again, taking a model, both from the Hasidic tradition and also from the Christian tradition, and providing guidance not only for people who wanted guidance out of the book, but for people who offer spiritual guidance to others. So those are two concrete examples of how I attempt to share my insights in Jewish spirituality with people. Obviously, many of my books are in academic areas, areas that I've trained in, um, areas that I'm exploring, um, those kinds of things. So that's most of the adult books. 
I find this fascinating. I want to. We're going to need to take a break, and when we come back, I want to just explore what you said about very quickly about teaching text to learn more about ourselves. I find that a really fascinating、um, concept, and then I'd love us to to talk about this transition that you're making towards children's books. So we're going to take a, a quick pause. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Rabbi Kerry Elitsky, prolific author. Um, and、uh, we're talking about Jewish spirituality and texts, and we'll be back after this break. Back listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Rabbi Kerry Elitsky, former director of Big Tent Judaism, vice president of Wexner Heritage Foundation, pioneer of Jewish twelve-step spirituality, which we've mentioned, and author of over seventy-five books. And after,、uh, before the break, Rabbi Elitsky, you said this extraordinary thing about you don't teach text in order to learn Torah, but you teach text to learn more about ourselves. And I wonder if you could just Say a little bit more about that. Sure, it's、um, a rule of thumb that I use, and it's particularly important in the narrative material because I believe that the Torah text, the biblical text in general, is not static; it's dynamic. And so, our goal is to actually enter into the text to become the character. To live with that character, and then when we leave the text behind, not only have we changed as a result, but the character has changed as well. I like to also say that when we open up the ark and and look at the Torah, bring out the Torah, share it with people, it doesn't exist until we engaged it. Engage it.、Mm-hmm. The the Torah is just a scroll with Hebrew letters written on it. But it doesn't become Torah until we fully engage it, and I think that that's part of our goal. I want to teach, use the sacred literature to help us learn more about the, the oneself, and I, I do that with the other books as well. I mean, one of my favorite books,、uh, which I will be teaching from this summer at a program that I'm running in Israel, is the book of Kohelet, the book of Ecclesiastes,、mm-hmm. and I really think that it's a model for our own. Life review, sometimes referred to in Hebrew as Cheshbon and Nefesh,、mm-hmm. but really it's it's a life review, and I think that that's what Kohelet is also doing. So that's how I again use a text to use it as a lens for our own lives. So I, I find this a very moving way to to approach. Teaching and learning, and I and I as I hear you talk, I wonder: Is this how I teach myself? And、uh, it's an interesting thing to reflect on. I guess my next question, because I, I know you're moving into children's books now.、I've, you've written over seventy-five books, mostly for adults. Some of the things you've been speaking about so far、um, are quite challenging, interesting. 
engaging themes for adults. What? What? Why did you make a transition to children's books? Well, I think that the easiest way to explain it is my wife and I have been blessed with seven grandchildren, and so as I began to see them struggle with ideas, learn, and the like, I said to myself, I, "How can I translate?" Some of the things that I know and have come to love for them, so that they can embrace it in their world, young as they are. So the the first children's book I wrote, which is kind of humorous, it's called "Where's the Potty on This Ark?" And I was experiencing um, potty training with one of my grandkids, and it occurred to me that there is virtually no Jewish book on this subject, and I placed it. In the context of the Noah's Ark story, right. So th- that's that's one way of getting into it. Um, one of the books that's coming out very soon is called The Desert Unicorn. Everybody loves unicorns. Well, it turns out that some of the rabbis believe that one of the animals in the desert, whose skin was eventually used as a covering for the tabernacle, mm-hmm. was in fact a unicorn. But this has never been treated in literature, except for sacred literature, and it's never been treated in a kid's book. So I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to take this idea and provide that kind of support to literally the children of the Israelites as they cross through the desert? I have to... Or in another case... Go on. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to... In another case... (laughs) I was just going to say, when it comes to the potty on this, where's the potty on this ark? Just to clarify, you're talking about, when you're talking about Noah's ark, I have to ask, do you mention in the book the poop deck? You know, it's the the obvious joke, right? It is, but not for kids, because I don't think they would get the uh, naval reference. Um, Go on, you were going to say about another book. Yeah, I, I was just going to mention that they try to address different ideas. And so um, one of the books that I have coming out, which comes directly from a personal experience, my wife and I were traveling in Alaska a few years, and I began to think about this question because I never think about it in the Northern Hemisphere, um, in the United States, uh, but I was thinking about it in Alaska because we were there in the summer. How do you begin to determine when Shabbat starts and when it ends, when it doesn't really get dark. And so I positioned this in a children's story called A Shabbat of a Whale Tale, which will be out this year as well. Interestingly enough, not from a Jewish press. Um, How do you begin to determine that? How do you use the wisdom of the local uh, people in order to determine when it's sunrise and when it's sunset? How do you use Jewish literature and the rabbis to determine when you start Shabbat? and frame it for a six- to eight-year-old. So I try to sometimes take these questions that I have and put them out for kids. And I also realize, as my experience shows me, a lot of times, especially people on the periphery of the Jewish community, learn and access Judaism in in particular, but religion in general, through their children. Mm-hmm. And so I understand it's kind of the Sesame Street model. When Sesame Street was born, they understood that they had a target op- op- uh, population, but they also had an older sibling and a caretaker, a parent, watching the show at the same time. So in education, we call it equivocal education. The- so if, if, if we want to show that to people, 
that I was mindful of the fact that other people are listening and reading as well. And I wanted to know, or I knew, that I was providing them with an education as well. It's a fascinating model because I, it makes me think of when I went to university in Scotland and I would bring Shabbat in at about three o'clock on Friday afternoon and I'd have my Shabbat dinner most of the time not long after people had had lunch. Um, so the idea of going even further north and there's also, of course, there's the halachic discussion about if you're in space, if you're a Jewish astronaut uh, going around the earth super quickly, um, how, you know, how do you celebrate Shabbat when a day is a totally different concept? So I love this idea of you, you bringing these different situations. Is it, is it, how, how do you determine what you're going to write about? Is it as you encounter something with family, friends? It sounds like, you know, you're, you hear the kids, you see the grandkids potty training. You think, wait, here's a, here's a question. Is, is it based on family situation? Is it, where, where does the inspiration come from for what you're going to write about next? I think that it, it comes from three areas. One, it comes from a personal experience. So something emerges that I want to think about, um, either that I've learned from a scholarly way and want to translate it. Sometimes it comes from a muse, which is one of my grandkids. Like, I have a book coming out on the Jewish community in Uganda, and the muse is actually one of my granddaughters who dances everywhere. She doesn't walk anywhere. She dances, she cartwheels, etc. And so the character in this book, even though it's placed in the Ugandan Jewish community, comes from her kind of um, way of living. So it just, it, it just really depends. Or I have another group of books. One is called, the first one is called Avi and Ahmed Play Football in Jerusalem. And that came directly out of an interfaith trip that I took right before the pandemic with Muslims, Jews, and Christians to Israel. And I began to think about, as I have for the past number of years, how do we begin to change attitudes? How do, because we know mm-hmm. that a lot of the kids' attitudes are, are formed by their parents. So how do we begin to change attitudes about relationships between Arabs and Israelis, Jews and Muslims, Christians, Jews and Muslims, etc.? And so the first book that I wrote, which was published, uh, uh, by the way, a uh, U.K. publisher, Dixie Books, mm-hmm. but Avi and Ahmed play football in Jerusalem, um, takes this subject on. And then a second one, which is an early reader, because there's a dearth of early readers in the Jewish community, it's called The Adventures of Leila and Alana, which is about two young girls navigating their life in the United States. One happens to be a Muslim and one happens to be Jewish. And so that, again, reflects the diversity, the cultural diversity of our community, but in an attempt to see that folks that come from different backgrounds can become friends can become close friends, can become intimate friends. And so I try also not only to teach big, challenging issues to kids, but also how do you change attitudes? Mm. How do you um, uh, instill values? I have a, a children's book that was just released called uh, Candyman Mystery, and it's a story about the Candyman, who's one of these characters that many synagogues have, who is friendly with the kids, gives out candy on Saturday morning, Sunday morning, whenever um, the kids are gathered in the synagogue, and he appears missing one day, and it turns out he's been unfortunately hospitalized. And so the kids go visit him. And so enmeshed in that, um, 
enmeshed in that story is the notion of Bikor Chulim, the, the Jewish value of visiting the sick. And so it's a way to teach a certain value within a, a humorous, uh, a mystery story to kids. So I take all of these different kinds of ideas and I put them in a, a children's book. And that's why I have um, a bunch that are already out and a bunch in the pipeline. I did. I, I'm amazed. I started writing a book 11 years ago, and I'm hoping to finish it next year. And and here you are just pouring out this extraordinary amount of, of quality Jewish material. Um, and I, I love the fact that, for example, that book that you mentioned about the Jewish community in Uganda, because very often Jewish texts seem to be very Ashkenormative, very much based yes. in, um, you know, here's a story that happened in Poland or here's a story that happened in America or here's a story that happened in Israel. But you seem to be opening up as well to other Jewish communities. People may not even know that there's a Jewish community in Uganda. So I, I'm exactly. just I'm fascinated by the way that you're you're opening up avenues to teach kids and to teach parents and that you're able to, to pour out these books. It's, it, I think it's quite extraordinary, actually. You mentioned you. well, my my Go on. my teacher Jacob Rader Marcus once said that um, the most important the most important asset for a writer is the chair that he sits on, <laughs> and so it's really about discipline more than anything else. <laughs> I I hear your subtle rebuke that I should just get on with it. <laughs> so look, we've only got two minutes left. You you did mention things in the pipeline. What have you got in the pipeline? Uh, the, well, the the next book that is coming out, which literally just came off the press, published by Apples and Honey, is called The Desert Unicorn. And as I mentioned, is a story about the unicorn accompanying uh, the kids in the desert. Uh, another book that's coming out in the pipeline by Colonial Books, which is a, a new um, publication on the scene, publisher on the scene, is a uh, uh, a story called An Invitation to Passover, which reflects the kind of diversity of people around the table. And one more I'll mention is a book called Rudy the Maintenance Man, which is coming out from a publisher called Higher Ground Books and Media. And it features the story of Rudy the Maintenance Man, who is a Christian, who falls ill in anticipation of Christmas. And so the Jewish community rises up and sets up his house and throws a Christmas party. And I, mm. I wrote that because, first of all, the name of the maintenance man at my first synagogue was Rudy, right. where I was the rabbi. And secondly, because I wanted to show people that they could experience another person's faith fully and religious celebration fully without compromising their own Jewish identity. I, I find this all so moving. I'm, I'm really very honored to be able to spend some time with you to to learn about all this amazing Jewish teaching that you are really spreading around the world to people of all ages. I, I really just want to thank you for your work and, um, and for spending time with us in, in our show this evening. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it very much. So thank you to Rabbi Kerry Olitsky, a pioneer of Jewish uh, 12-step spirituality, author of over 75 adult books, and also now um, author of many children's books that are out and children's books that are to come. I really uh, wish you every success with your work. I, I think it's extraordinary. I look forward to reading more of your books. 
You've been, lis- you. you've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.